is the seashore a border that marks a clear separation between land and water? Or is a shoreline a place of such constant flux and change that it can stand as a metaphor for how other boundaries, between societies or genders or races, for example, may be equally fluid? Philip Jones of the University of Nottingham looks at poetry which uses the sea to comb the limits of geography and the human. This talk was recorded as part of the series Late Summer Lectures in 2017, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Given that the theme of this series has been changed, uh, the coastline seems a kind of obvious landscape to consider, having often been characterised as a site of flux and metamorphosis. So Christopher Singer um, argues that the shore is transformation spatialised. In this way, the coastline is often held up as a liberatory landscape that disrupts traditional binaries of life and death, the material and immaterial, nature and culture, as well as allowing for the inversion of normative spatial expressions of power through the interplay of cores and peripheries. While this is a potent part of cultural and social responses to the shore, it can often overlook the way coastal terrains are not just sites of flux, but also often spaces of limit and separation whether that is encoding old divisions of class, gender and race in new forms, or suggesting new ruptures that emerge from a radical rethinking of terrestrial spatialities. So as Susan Friedman says more generally, borders have a way of insisting on separation at the same time as they acknowledge connection. And while there are kind of several ways to approach the coast as a site of both flux and fix, connection and rupture, um, this talk wants to explore two different and contrasting poetic responses. So you have Peter Riley's Sea Watchers and then Wendy Mulford's East Anglia Sequence. Um, but nonetheless, they both kind of emphasise how attention to textual representation of the material landscape can complicate understandings of the shore as a site of change and transition, particularly when we're thinking about ideas of kind of place and belonging and how we understand our relationship in the landscape. Um, for Riley, this is through consideration of how embodied experience of the landscape interacts with diverse temporalities of the shore, while for Mulford, this emerges through an awareness of how erosion and loss allows for writing to move, perhaps kind of counterintuitively, towards a sense of emplacement. So, start off with Peter Riley. Um, so, I'm going to be talking about Riley's 1991 sequence, Sea Watchers, which is an exploration of intimate questions of faith and redemption particularly around kind of sustaining experiences of the transcendent beyond exposure to, and often even kind of within the liminal terrain of the Lynn Peninsula in North Wales. Um, so Riley's sequence draws on over 10 years of annual visits to the peninsula, um, and Sea Watch itself is part of a kind of decades-long relationship Riley has to this particular coastal region. And so in the Lynn writings is a collection of kind of all the material he's produced, I think, across 30 years. So they're kind of poetic fragments, prose pieces, uh, two other kind of major sequences uh, between harbours and Sea-Watch elegies. So this is really kind of a place where he's very familiar with, very interested in. Um, and given this kind of sustained poetic attention, the focus of this part of the talk is on the way Riley responds to different notions of time at the coast. Um, and in doing so, he draws on what Rachel Carson's called perhaps a bit too antagonistically for my liking, um, the dual nature of the sea, changing with the swing of the tides, but also an ever-present ancient world. Um, in Sea Watchers, these different temporal rhythms are conditioned by the peninsula's association with medieval pilgrimage. Uh, quote, the drowsy shore where centuries before, hundreds landed daily, peasant merchant kings, barefooted and lost, ghosting the outer rose. 
Um, so ideas of pilgrimage provide access to this early human presence, while the diversions away from the journey towards Barzi Island, which as you can tell from the picture on the cover, lies kind of just beyond the edge of the peninsula, um, introduce ideas of doubt and contingency into Riley's writing. So from the perspective of this kind of deep history, pilgrimage is used as an embodied experience and poetic image through which to work towards an understanding of the final extent and meaning of a human life. So as the opening standard to the first poem in the sequence, Cliff Top Annuals, makes clear, almost there we hesitate and turn, high on the soft edge of Britain, to view the whole story, the sea barking up both sides of the peninsula to the point, top crest of land, pilgrim's goal or final extent of a life's coming and going, cool together when there is after all a focus and intellectual love. Um, viewing the peninsula from this vantage point allows the poem to bring together different conceptions of the whole story. Um, it's the personal story of the speaker's life overlaid in a landscape formed by historic narratives of religious activity. And this kind of linking of landscape, a sense of place and religious experience extends to the vastness of sea and sky so that, as Didier Malouvre suggests, and I've probably mispronounced that name, so apologies to French speakers, um, the horizon becomes a grounding view of a world rife with transcendental openness. Um, so Clifftop Annuals describes the quote, shifting slow and vast extant view from the cliff top, so large as to raise questions talking of the whole of a life, uh, not just now and never to stop. So this is an understanding of the peninsula's landscape, which emphasises the seeming atemporality of the literal. Its resistance, perhaps kind of paradoxically, to ideas of flux and change the backdrop of apparently endless sea and sky providing an image of durability against which the finite experience of life can be made comprehensible. Yet at the same time within the sequence, there is a competing strand of thought which seeks to work against the sense of fastness. Foregrounding contingency and particularity is appropriate space-time rhythms for working through notions of finality and purpose. So as Riley says in an interview with Keith Tumor, bringing down from various mental constructs is to me precisely one of the principal functions of the movement in poems, undercutting both your own claims and those you find in the air around you. Um, and similarly, in the topographical notes to Sea Watchers, Riley states that the sequence of stanzas edges slowly towards the site of Bardsey, with many tactics of diversion and recoil. Um, such invasions are particularly prominent in the middle poem of the sequence, titled fittingly enough, fourth out and first back. Uh, quote, and up on the side of North Wales to a town selling death back to the lost people from industry, is coloured wrapped with glints of distance, toffee stick, and here we are before we were again, pastoral that slides off before you can suck it. So by quick and go, on by the cool straits, the calm woods and railways. So compared to the vast, calm expanse of sea and sky, there's a sense of mobility and slipperiness the sequence changing orientation from a journey towards Barsi Island to escape away from the peninsula. Um, and fourth out, first back does gesture towards some sense of stability. Um, for example, the coastline is described as warmly embracing, quote, the mountains gather towards the sea and the coastal strip sweeps under in a curling arm. Yet this shift towards containment is immediately turned into the scattered threads of remote history. It's already shoots over the sliding geography of the peninsula engaged in nothing but evasion. Um, and these reciprocal movements, it wants kind of towards and away from Pilgrim's goal, between the sense of the peninsula's space-time as firm and immutable, or contingent and fragmented, is something imbued not just in the language of the poem, but in the construction of sea watches as a sequence. 
Um, several poems seem to almost alternate between stanzas which emphasise a sense of abstract intellectual feeling and those predicated on kind of ideas of intimate embodied experience. You can see that as soon as kind of the opening stanza finishes, um, with its description of the final extent of a life's coming and going, the second stanza kind of deflates this potential for comprehending life in its totality, stating that Pilgrim's goal is something that, quote, we shall not reach today is quite obviously already all we are. So such a kind of alternation is also present in the rhyme scheme of the sequence. Um, in a note on this, Riley writes that the stanzas of Sea Watchers rhyme alternate, alternately A, B, C, D, E, F. This means that the end rhymes are 12 lines apart and cannot be without difficulty held in the reader's mind. In Clifftop Annuals, stanzas 1, 3, 5 and 7, which contain images of abstract and personal human relationships, share end rhymes like soft, cleft, clift, off, or extent, different, resentment, instrumental. And something similar can be seen in stanzas 2, 4, 6 and 8, which explore notions of, kind of personal, material and domestic levels of experience. And kind of by taking this approach, Riley is producing a tentative framework in which the other poems in the sequence can move forward and unfold. This is not necessarily to find a definitive answer to the significance of a life's coming and goings, rather it provides a structure in which to constantly question both ideas present in the world and the speaker's own claims of knowledge. Though dependent on half rhymes such as cliff and cleft or extent and different, the rhyme scheme is suggestive of an underlying structure that, while allowing diversions and change, nevertheless pulls the sequence towards some kind of reckoning. Um, and in the movement between what Riley calls the cracked dreams and common musings of the poem, ideas of flux and stability are not simply diametrically opposed, but built into a shared understanding of the peninsula. The continued presence of Riley, year after year, works to suggest the experience of Lynn is not closed off from predetermined by the longer history of pilgrimage which shapes the landscape. Like the rhythm of ties which signal change and flux, but nonetheless occur within daily cycles, which can be predicted and mapped, Sea Watchers tries to find a way to navigate what Riley has called the diurnal bodily packs, the daily movement back and forth across the peninsula within these longer temporal rhythms of human habitation. Now on to Wendy Mulford. So where Riley is kind of responding to a sense of stability and duration which emerges from a solid material landscape, Wendy Mulford's East Anglia sequence is grounded in a coastal terrain which is much more fragile, exposed to devastating storm surges coming off the North Sea. So undermining, in a quite literal sense, the sequence's stated aim of getting to the quick of it, the all but buried particulars of its meaning. Like Riley, the East Anglia sequence displays an awareness of the longer histories of these coastal landscapes, but finds in the sustained human presence narratives of exploitation and expropriation, which makes East Anglia difficult for Mulford to inhabit. The sequence suggests it is only by embracing the destructive erosion of the North Sea their more unrestricted and dynamic sense of belonging can be approached. Um, now, the sequence itself charts Mulford's developing understanding of emplacement in the region across a 10-year period between 1984 and 1995, covering specifically the localities of Salthouse and Norfolk and the almost submerged village of Dunwich and Suffolk. And that kind of blurry photograph there is kind of all that's left of Dunwich now. It was once a kind of sprawling medieval town. It's about half a church. Um, Mulford interestingly describes a sense of belonging as developing from a blow-in to a migrant. So as I'm talking, it might be worth bearing in mind her own kind of fluid and mobile sense of inhabitation. And that this label migrant actually is associated with the destroyed village of Dunwich. So there's kind of interesting things already going on here with ideas of kind of loss and habitation. 
Um, the sequence is constructed out of a variety of discourses, from the bland language of coastal management, which struggles to impose itself on the crumbling landscape, to a more visionary poetic voice with which a positive sense of loss is associated. One of these voices is a more historical one, which seeks to draw attention to the obscure presence of women in East Anglia. Um, and in the revised version of the sequence, which was published in 2002 in selected poems, uh, these particular poems are grouped under the heading Tales, so kind of helping to indicate how the stories and struggles of women to inhabit East Anglia exist outside of the kind of official histories of the region. And in this sense, Mulford is kind of being attentive to what the American poet Susan Howe has described as, quote, the sounds and spirits, ghosts if you like, which leave traces in a geography. The tales and the places are tied in a mysterious and profound way. Um, one of these tales is Gabriel Piggott and concerns questions of tenancy. Piggott's unnamed mother, who was the real focus of the poem, gathering up her family into St. Nicholas' porch, having been evicted from their home. This loss of shelter takes the form of a list of grievances that link this removal of dwelling to a wider sense of dispossession from the local environment. Quote, listing her grievances, viz, loss of eels, loss of fish, samphire, grazing, flags, furzes, winds from heath, windfowl, plants, marshland, herbs. There is a sense in the poem that Gabriel Piggott's mother has, due to this kind of intimate relation to the local environment, is much of a claim on the land as the legal rights of the landlord. Piggott's mother is seemingly successful in contesting her eviction. Her series of complaints challenging, quote, here's a nature's expropriation, and resulting in the landlord being compelled to rehouse them. Yet by ending the poem with a list of grievances, with the, quote, loss of food, warmth, shelter, living, Mulford's drawing attention towards this initial act of disposition, uh, dispossession. Um, similar, similarly, another kind of tale poem called Zurashadi Girdlestone sees Girdlestone's unnamed wife tied into logics of land ownership and the symbolic and material reproduction of a social order in which she herself is powerless. So one component of the labour she is depicted doing, although not succeeding in, is child raising. Quote, one drowned in the harbour, one miscarried at birth, one dead of the pox. Successful childbirth in this context means inheritance, that one passes on one's property onto one's children, not only continuing the family name, but preserving wealth, ownership and status. The sad fate of their children is not just a personal catastrophe, but also prevents the continuation of Girdlestone's domination of the land. In this kind of straining of the female body into patterns of reproduction, of both the family unit and certain dynamics of social and economic power, emphasised in the poem by Mulford playing with the surname Girdlestone. Uh, so, for example, burrowing, battering progeny, girdling the hearth, quick as mongoose feet, how hot, how wearisome. Um, in this context, girdling picks up ideas of enclosure, linking with the domestic sphere of the hearth. And such constriction is seen to reduce the fantastical quality of Girdlestone's wife, is, quote, changeling, queen of the dark nights, to something hot, wearisome, a burden which is never ending. Elsewhere, Girdlestone's wife becomes the flag of our name, reduced to a cipher for the desires of domestic, sexual and legal ownership of the patriarchal figure. Um, and if the sustained human presence at the peninsula gave Riley a scale against which to make sense of a life's coming and goings, the East Anglia sequence's awareness of human habitation at the peninsula is seen to prevent a barrier to Mulford's own inhabitation of the region. The sequence concerned with, quote, England's spent inheritance and the intrusion of blow-ins in converted barns. 
is the poem Salt House 1986 puts it, Playboys ascend, while boatmen, builders, fisher folk receive notice to quit. So kind of in response to this, the sequence suggests a radical embracing of flux and erosion, which at the beginning of the sequence is shown to be threatening a sense of place. It's the way to make East Anglia habitable for Mulford. There's a sense that, quote, loss is the condition of paradise, which may just be a bad pun on Milton's paradise lost, but I'm willing to bet it's slightly more significant. Um, and this emerges from a dynamic and visionary lyric voice in the sequence, one which empathises with and finds a sense of recognition in the images of sister sea and sister water. Um, these more lyric sections of the sequence are therefore matched with an empowered, kind of distinctly female perspective, one that is active in the shaping of the environment through physical experience of erosion, rather than subject to processes of exclusion and dispossession. Um, and particularly important in this regard is the coda to the sequence, where this lyric voice dominates. So in a tale of loss, the linking of the feminine with notions of fluidity and change is emphasised. An unnamed her describes dripping away, melting into the sea, while the poem Gold figures loss as a spatial release from the hammered earth, loss here becoming off-course loveliness. And so kind of loss of direction in this sense signals a breakup of bounded, culturally received notions of place, linking this to a release of social restraints on female personhood and a new active and mobile relationship to location. Loss means the female figure who was gritting eyes, lips, is now positioned floating above the coast, glowing toes pointing back to earth. Such rupture, what Mulford has described as a relentless twisting to and fro of energy, is still linked to some form of embodied subjective experience, a quote, continuing to work with the subject and I, despite or through its rifts, absences, contradictions. Hence why it is the emergence of a lyric voice which is involved in the fluid breaking free of geographical and social relations in the sequence. Um, this is most apparent in the final poem of the coda, um, called Dream of Renewal, which concludes with a spatial expansion out from East Anglia, which is also a moment of articulation, or I guess the moment just before articulation. Quote, Across the rushes, white sail tops, soundless, the galaxy too, brush your cheek, oh, hear me out. The code to the sequence therefore demonstrates an imaginative reformulation of the relationship between place and self, one that is relational and fluid, emerging from an implicit awareness of the social and historical forces that have restricted female subjectivity and the physical processes, processes that produce the shifting and unstable ground of England's eastern coast. So, hopefully this paper has gone some way to showing how two modern poets, uh, Peter Addy and Wendy Mulford, acknowledge notions of change and flux at the coastline, particularly in kind of relations to ideas of place and emplacement. Though both respond in different ways, Riley seeking to negotiate vast and abstract intellectual processes with daily struggles of life on the peninsula, in Mulford harnessing the erosive qualities of sea and storm to undermine a landscape stri striated by histories of exploitation and expropriation. Each of these texts complicates an understanding of the coastline as a geography which, as suggested by Singer at the beginning of this talk, is deeply imbricated with notions of transgression and metamorphosis. And it's not that Riley and Mulford fail to utilise ideas of flux and fluidity in their poems, but that these experiences must be mediated through notions of restriction and rupture that emerge from an attention to both the material topographies of the shore and the entangled social histories of these literal spaces. For these poets, the coast is not just a porous zone of transmission or reception. 
even as it allows access to a variety of temporal scales and experiences. It is also an Ursula Kluwick, in Virginia Richter's words, a space of demarcation in which distinction and blockage still be contended with. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.